Welcome to Changed My Mind. Over 80% of people think we're becoming more divided, but does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds us back and why changing our minds can be such a powerful thing. I'm Alex Chesterfield, an elected councillor here in the UK and a behavioural scientist. My usual podcast co-hosts and fellow girls, Laura Osborne and Ali Goldsworthy, sadly couldn't join me for this one, so it's just me for this special edition. Today's episode of Change My Mind is a special edition because it tries to uncover some of the science or the research around why we change our mind. My guest today is a leading expert on human decision-making and emotion. So using psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience, her research reveals what shapes our decisions and beliefs and how they can be changed. So super relevant for our podcast. Tali Sharot is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University College London and current visiting professor at MIT. Last year, Tally published her second best-selling book, The Influential Mind, which examines what the brain reveals about what works to change others' minds and what does not. How do people form their beliefs in the first place? So um, beliefs are the result of information that we get from our experience with the world, from um, other people, observing other people, learning about other people's beliefs. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's a very good question. I was going to say, so, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it's so a real mix of things. Okay. So I'm, I'm interested what people use to change people, try and change people's minds. So facts are often used to persuade and influence people. I was debating a few months ago with a work colleague on climate change Now, he's a massive climate change sceptic, and no matter how many doom-laden statistics I threw at him, he dug in even more. Now, you've done a fascinating study on exactly this. Can you describe your research and what was going on, or maybe going on, in his brain? So, um, yeah, we did one study on on climate change, and this is together with Cass Seinstein and uh, a few of my students at the Effective Brain Lab. And what we wanted to know is whether we could change people's beliefs about climate change. So we did this online um, with a few hundred individuals. And the first thing we wanted to know is what's their current belief about climate change. So we asked them a few questions, like, for example, do you believe in that climate change is man-made? Uh, do you support the Paris Agreement? And based on those answers, we divided them into the strong believers and to the weak believers. And we asked them by how much they thought the temperature would rise in the next 100 years. So unsurprisingly, those that um, believed more in climate change thought that, you know, the climate uh, would get much warmer than the uh, ones that didn't. And then we gave them um, a piece of information. So for half of our participants, we said that the scientists have re-evaluated the data and they now believe that things are actually much better than previously thought and the temperature would rise by only a very, very small amount. And we told the other half that the, the scientists have re-evaluated the data and now believe that things are much worse than previously thought and the temperature would rise by a very substantial amount. And we gave them the specific numbers. Mm-hmm. And then we asked them again, okay, please re-estimate and say, what do you believe now after you've heard it? What do you believe? And what we found was that people tended to change their beliefs in the direction of 
what they already came in with. So that is to say that people who people who already strongly believed in climate change, when they learned that the scientists are saying, oh, things are even worse than we expected, they moved more in that direction. Mm. But they didn't switch when they heard that the scientists are saying, actually, things are not as bad. Now, those that didn't believe in climate change to begin with, they didn't move much their belief when they heard that the scientists are saying that things are much worse than, expect, than they previously thought. But when they heard that the scientists are saying, actually, it's much better, um, they moved more in that direction. So that means at the end of the day, people were, were kind of moving apart, right? Because people were more influenced by information mm-hmm. that confirmed their preconceived notions that fit with their worldview. Um, and this is just one example of how information can actually cause polarization. Because if we take in the information that confirms what we already believe, and we tend to look at information that doesn't confirm it with skeptical kind of eyes, then um, we get polarization, which is what we see now. Sure. Does it matter how strongly held the belief was in the first place? So, i.e., is it cha- easier to change minds or update your beliefs if that belief was shaker to start with? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, there's kind of a Bayesian framework, so to speak, um, which is. What matters of whether you're going to change your belief is your current belief, how strong or how confident you are in that belief, the new piece of information, um, how confident are you in that piece of information. For example, it may matter whether, what source is it coming from. Um, and the further away the piece of information is from the current belief, the less likely it is to change it. And of course, the more confident your belief already are, the less likely you are to change them. Um, however, when a piece of information, even if it contradicts a strongly held belief, if the news is better, so in other words, if it feels better to change your belief, you will. So let me give you an example. Um, this is a study that was conducted by Ryan McKay and his students um, in the UK, and they tested 1,000 Americans just a few months before the presidential election, and they asked them to say who they wanted to win the presidential election and who they thought was going to win. So half of the participants said they wanted Trump to win and half said they want Clinton to win. And back in August, most people believed that Clinton was going to win. So both the Trump supporters and the Clinton supporters believed that Trump was going to win. And so then they gave them a piece of information, um, specifically a poll that predicted a Trump victory. And then they asked them again, who do you think is going to win? And what they found was that the Trump supporters, when they got the poll, they said, oh, well, maybe Trump will win. So they changed their beliefs quite a bit. And they said, well, we think maybe he has a good chance. The Clinton supporters, on the other hand, didn't change their belief much. They said, well, we don't really believe this poll. You can't really trust these polls. And they still believe that Clinton would win. So this is an example where you get a piece of information. Let's say you're the Trump supporter. You get a piece of information that disconfirms what you believe. You think at that, you know, in August, people thought Trump wouldn't win. Even his supporters didn't think he was going to win. So you get a piece of information that contradicts what you believe, but it goes along with what you want to believe. Um, And that has strong effects. So the two really things that matter is your motivation. What do you want to believe and what you ready to believe? So it seems from what you're saying and what the the real research says is that people can embrace the facts. But if the information is what you want to hear... Now, in your book, you describe how the online world is making this worse, filtering what we see. So we only hear from people like us with the same views, resulting in a massive echo chamber and more polarisation. Now, from an evolutionary perspective, this this doesn't make sense. 
So why have we evolved to more readily update our beliefs in the face of favourable information, but not unfavourable information, but which might be objectively true? So I guess the way I was thinking about it is why haven't we developed or evolved a truth radar? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the only way to, to evolve a truth radar is according to the what you do use. So we do, we do have a truth radar for sure. Um, our truth radar is that we evaluate information based on our beliefs because in general that makes sense. Usually, um, in most cases, when information contradicts what you believe, it is false. Um, so that is a very good way, a very good way to update your belief. Um, you know, I give an example. If I told you that I saw a pink elephant flying in the sky, you would probably think that I'm delusional or lying, as you should, because you have a strong belief that, that uh, elephants don't fly in the sky, and therefore you dismiss that piece of information. So that is our truth radar. That is how we should do it. It's correct to either update our beliefs or not update our beliefs according to how strong our prior is um, and how strong the information seems to be um, in regards to where it's coming from. And if it's further away from our belief, most likely it is going to be incorrect. So 80% of the time, or I don't know, whatever percentage of the time, that is the right thing to do. However, it also means that um, when you do hold false beliefs for whatever reason, they're very, very hard to change. So any rule that we would come up with may work in you know a good percentage of time, but not work in, in another part part of a of the incidents that you encounter. So that that is kind of the idea that confirmation bias is is actually overall the thing that you should do throughout your life. Um, but knowing that it can also cause you to hold on to false beliefs in some cases. Mm. Um, and then the question of motivation is very, very different. Um, of why do we, uh, why are we more likely to update our beliefs when the information is better than when it's worse? So in general, if you update your beliefs more when information is better than expected, than when it's worse than expected, or information is what you want to hear, um, you are more likely to have these positive beliefs and therefore more likely to be optimistic in general. Um, and that is something that's good for our well-being and our physical health. That is to say, even if we have illusions and even if we have false beliefs, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So it's not just false beliefs are always bad. In fact, you can have false beliefs and actually would be a good thing because it can enhance your motivation. So, for example, um, we have um, what we call the update bias, which is a tendency to update your beliefs when you get good news and bad news. For example, if I tell you, oh, you are more likely to get that job than you think, um, and you update your beliefs a lot, if I tell you you're less likely to get the job than you think, you update it less. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because now you believe that you're going to get the job, and so you're more motivated, more likely to take in the action. Also, stress is reduced because you have these positive beliefs, and these are all good things. However, of course... Uh, sometimes false beliefs can also be a bad thing, right? So if you tend to think things are going to be okay, you might not take precautionary action. You might not, um, you know, no, not go to medical screenings when you should because you think, oh, I'm healthy or, or other things like that. So that's a negative side. But what we found was that um, there's a little trick that evolution kind of put in us, which is whether you update your beliefs according to what you want to believe depends on the environment. So if you're in an environment that's relatively safe, like the one that we are today, um, you are most likely to have this bias where you, you change your beliefs more when things are good news and bad news. 
However, if you are stressed, if the environment is dangerous, um, and your reaction is to get stressed, like people do in dangerous environments, that bias goes away. And so that's quite adaptive because it means normally in, in not dangerous environments, you update more when it's good, so you slightly have wrong beliefs, but that's not necessarily all bad because it keeps your mind at rest. Um, and when things do become um, quite dangerous and you feel stressed, then this bias tends to go away, and now you're updating both for good and bad news the same in the same way. Um, so, so, so yeah, that's why, why I believe evolution has, has kind of put these biases um, in the way that we update our beliefs. Mm, so it's generally a good thing? Um, I mean, it's good and bad, but um, just the, the, if thinking about a few things, why would, why would we think it's good? Well, A, the fact that you see it in most individuals, you see it in different animals, you see it across cultures. Um, the fact that it survived through evolution suggests that probably on average, it's probably a good thing. It's probably evolved because it gives us some advantage. And there's many advantages. There's, I just mentioned a few. There's an advantage for exploration. If I think my environment is good, I'm more likely to explore, and they're more, therefore more likely to find actually you know, the rewards. Um, and the other thing, the other reason we believe it's good is because these biases result in uh, positive expectations of the future and po positive beliefs. This is then correlated with um, physical health, mental health, success in many domains in general. So nothing is black and white, right? There's not one thing that is always good or always bad. The question is, on average, for most individuals and most of the time, does the good overlay the bad? And the answer seems to be that yes. Um, and the second question is, can it change? Can the bias change when, in the cases where it's not good for you because of changes in the environment? And again, the answer is yes. So that mechanism together seems to be quite adaptive. Now, I want to go back to um, where you were saying that it's, it, it can be really hard to change minds and change beliefs, particularly when the priors are strong and we're motivated not to not to change our minds. So, what has your research found that does work to change others' minds? Well, um, in my mind, the best thing is actually to figure out why do you want to change someone's mind. Usually, you want to change someone's mind mostly because you want to change an outcome. Um, so, for example, you want to you want to uh, convince someone to vote one thing, not the other. Or you want to convince them to get vaccinated, right? Or to get their kids vaccinated. And, and, um, or you want them to believe in climate change because you want them to recycle or you want them to put, um, invest in, in finding other ways to get energy or things like that. In many cases, to get to those outcomes, you don't actually need to change the false beliefs. You can actually either insert new beliefs altogether or highlight different motivations why someone should take the action. So let me give you an example to illustrate this. Um, let's take an example from autism and vaccines. So um, there's people who believe that there's a link between um, autism and childhood vaccines. This, of course, um, is incorrect, but um, people, some people believe there is a link between the two. And because of that, they don't want to vaccinate their kids. 
Um, and so normally what physicians do is they try to show all the data that shows there isn't a link, and that's the way that they try to convince the parents to vaccinate the kids. But this is very difficult in cases where situations where people already have a strong belief. So it's very hard to change, and it doesn't work very well. So a group of researchers at uh, UCLA said, can we use another way? Can we get people to vaccinate their kids without even addressing the belief about whether it's related to autism or not. So what they did is they highlighted the fact that these vaccines protect individuals, protect kids from potentially deadly diseases, from the measles, mumps, rubella. Um, and by doing that, now that's not something that the parents disagreed with. They had no reason not to believe that the vaccines are protecting their kids from these diseases. That's something that they believed, but it seemed to be uh, forgotten in the debate. So by highlighting these um, highlighting this route and highlighting these advantages, they were much more likely to convince parents' intentions to vaccinate their kids without needing to even talk about autism or try to change um, the belief regarding autism. And can you, can you also interpret those results, uh, I guess, apart from finding common ground and inserting a new belief through the, the, by the fact that they were pulling, pulling the parents' heartstrings, so focusing on protecting your child, which is as a mum of two, quite a fundamental um, fundamental desire. So, it, so I guess it seems using emotions can be powerful in, in changing minds and, and getting to that outcome. And actually drawing what you, when you were saying about voting. So again, I'm um, here in the UK, an elected councillor, and in political campaigning, I was always taught that negative campaigns work the best to get the vote out and, and get the vote that you, you want. But your book... Uh, sheds doubt on this. So you describe a study in a hospital which was trying to get doctors and nurses to wash their hands more to prevent the spread of infection. There's a massive issue here in the UK and and in the US. You found that using fear-based messages around the risk to patients from not washing hands was not particularly successful. And can you tell us more about why in this situation fear, so negative emotion, didn't work and what did? Yeah, so in general, let me tell you why um, I believe fear is not the, the strongest way to change beliefs and action. So let's start with actions. So there is this association between reward and action and loss and inaction. So the uh, finding is basically this. In order to get a reward, let's say you want to get a piece of chocolate cake or to find love or to um, get a promotion, usually you need to act, right? I want to get some water. I need to move my hand and get some and get water and drink it. Um, so there's this kind of association between actions and reward. We need to take an action in most cases in order to get a reward. And so our brain has evolved in this environment, and there's um, a strong connection between our reward center and our motor cortex. And when we expect a reward, the likelihood of an action is increased. So we immediately are more likely to act when we expect a reward. Um, when it comes to a loss, it's the other way around. So normally, in most cases, not all, but in the majority of cases, in order to avoid a loss, we need to not do anything. So for example, um, in order to avoid poison, we just need to not drink it. In order to avoid untrustworthy people, we need to stay away from them. In order to avoid deep waters, we simply need not to jump in. So in many, many cases, in the majority of cases, you avoid loss by inaction. And so our brain has evolved in that kind of environment, and when we expect something bad, 
um, the there's a signal in the brain that's what we call the no-go signal. So I expect something bad, and then a signal comes from my reward center up to my motor cortex, and it inhibits action. Of course, I can overcome it, right? But this is the idea that if, if you see like you know a car coming your way, your first reaction is actually to freeze, and only after that to run. So the first reaction is is normally actually an inaction. Um, and therefore, if you want someone to act, um, the intuitive thing is actually to highlight what they can get in terms of reward, not necessarily to, to cause them to be afraid. By causing people to be afraid, it is highly likely that they will become demotivated and less likely to act, less likely to go out and vote. So if you want people not to vote, maybe fear is better. If you want them to vote, highlight what they have to gain. What is the progress that they are going out to vote for? And I have to say that most political campaigns is, almost all of them, are about what you have to gain. It is about optimism. So I'm kind of surprised, even when, even in the case of Trump, people say, oh, it's all a fear campaign. But I don't see it that way at all. I mean, his, his slogan is make America great again, right? He's highlighting the reward that one would get in the future if one votes for him. And so I think people voted for Trump and they voted for Brexit, not because of fear, because they thought by voting for those uh, for Trump and for Brexit, they will uh, get a better future, right? So they were out because they wanted better. They wanted reward, not necessarily because they were so afraid, not necessarily because they were... Um, trying to avoid a loss. In many cases, they already had a loss. They already saw themselves as a situation where they are in loss, and they actually wanted to change it and get a reward. So that's that. Now, going back to um, another, but another other, a whole different reason not to try to cause people to be afraid is that, well, by doing that, let's say even if you are successful at causing action, well, if you cause people to be afraid, you are negatively affecting their mental state, right? So negatively affecting their well-being. So if you could do, if you could get them to change their behavior without doing that, that would be much better. And going back to the example that you mentioned from my book and uh, the hand-washing example, there what they were trying to do is get doctors to wash their hands before and after entering a patient's room. And normally the way that they try to do that is just tell doctors that if they don't wash their hands, the likelihood of spreading disease is quite high. But that alone is not enough because the percentage of hand washing is about 38% in most hospitals and restaurants. And so then they said, well, let's try a different approach. And they uh, put cameras uh, above Lots all the doors in a in a in a ICU center. This was done in New York in a hospital in New York, and the doctors knew that the cameras were installed, so it wasn't a nanny camera situation. But the cameras alone were not enough to get people to change the behavior. So knowing that they're watched, they actually it didn't have a strong effect. So then they added an electronic board, and what the electronic board did is that every time a doctor washed their hands or a medical staff washed their hands they could see the numbers going up on the electronic board, which captured the daily percent of doctors washing their hands and also the weekly rate. And it also gave them a positive message. So it said, well done, good job. There was actually people watching them in India 24-7 and giving them this kind of feedback in real time. And by doing that, they went from a compliance rate of 10% to a compliance rate of 90%. And it stayed there for quite a while. And then they replicated it in another division in the hospital, and they got the same. 
They started at about 30%. They put in the electronic board with the immediate positive feedback and it went up. And so the reason this works is that instead of using fear, right, instead of threatening them with disease in the future, which doesn't seem to work very well because it might lead to inaction, they're actually highlighting progress. They're highlighting the fact that, look, the numbers are going up, you're doing better, and giving them immediate positive um, uh, feedback. People love seeing good job, you know. It seems silly, but actually people do. When they see, you know, well done, it actually makes you feel good. And so now the act of washing your hands is associated with a reward. Um, in this case, things like good job. And so the action that led to the reward is strengthened. And so you're more likely to wash your hands again and again in the future until it becomes a habit. And once it becomes a habit, you don't actually need the electronic board anymore. I can totally see why the feedback and the rewards work so my my both my kids so three and six love a reward star chart and it seems to be way more effective than threats of time out or or going to your room so yeah I I, I get that now Tally the next question might be one of those ones you're like I don't really have a viewpoint so it to- it's fine to skip moving slightly to leaders so whether it's in business or in politics it's sometimes highlighted in the literature that it's effective to stand out or sorry to be effective uh, from your peers, uh, you should stand out. But what we see in reality is actually leaders not talking, well, avoiding talking about changing their minds. So here in the U- in the UK and probably also in the US, when politicians or, or businesses change their minds, the you know media comes out with headlines screaming a U-turn or flip-flopping, and it's seen as a sign of weakness. So, I guess what I'm interested in what why do you think leaders don't talk more about changing their minds? Well, I actually think that perhaps the case is that we don't actually change our minds very often on the things that we care about a lot. Um, I mean, a lot. I mean, I if you look at the, the percentage of people like changing their um, political affiliation, for example, or actually changing their minds about very deep issues, it's it's uncommon. Mm. It's there. So I think. Um, it is possible that it's simply a rare event in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And um, B, even if you do change your mind, perhaps it's not something that we are aware of. Perhaps we're not completely aware that we changed our minds. Now, it is a hard thing to do. If you try to, to do it now, or all the listeners are trying to do now, and think, what, what was something that was, it's really, really crucial, you know, that you change your mind, a viewpoint that you change your mind on, religion, politics, you know, any kind of strong beliefs, it's quite hard to come up with some something. Um, so that's one, I think that's a, a, a huge reason why you don't see uh, people coming out and saying it, because I think it's just simply rare. And plus, when it happens, we're not necessarily aware of it. But if you're asking when people are aware of it, and they decide not to say it, um, I wonder if... Um, you know, perhaps when you do change your minds, you see both views, um, mm-hmm. and you don't want, you know, the other camp to see you as uh, um, now belonging to yet another camp, right, or something like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting because even actually in this, uh, recording this podcast, when we've spoken to guests, and normally we've started off by saying, you know, when did you last change your mind on an issue? When have you changed your mind? And it's been noticeable how people have really struggled to, yeah. uh, to 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 provide an example of when they've changed their mind. So it made us wonder: Are are we hardwired to 
forget when and what we've changed our mind on? Or is it, as you said, that actually it's quite a rare, rare event that we do change our mind on the more substantial, significant issues? Um, I think it's probably both. I think it is extremely rare, right? This is the whole problem with polarization and, you know, confirmation bias. This is the whole problem. We simply don't change our mind often. Um, yeah, so I think it's rare. Whether we forget, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I don't know of research um, on those issues, so I don't really have, you know, any data to kind of rely on. But I know that I have the same experience because you asked me, what is it that you changed your mind on? And it was really, really hard to come up with something um, that was kind of substantial. And even when I did come up with something, um, it, um, you know, it, I was kind of, well, I'm concerned about saying it because people may misunderstand um, what I'm saying, right? So if you can imagine, like, this is not about, I did not change my mind about gun control at all. I have a strong position on that. But let's say it was something like that. Um, and, you know, I can see the both sides, although I can't, like, gun control is a bad example because I do have strong opinion. But I don't know, something like that, right? Um, yeah, so you, you don't, you, you kind of, you don't fully change your mind, but you, you kind of, like, going in that direction, inter- but you kind of can see both sides and you want to make sure that, that um, you're not interprets you, people don't interpret what you're saying as oh now you think it's almost like um, uh, was well, in the kind of context of psychological safety so that interpersonal risk like you don't you don't want to say something that's going to either hurt your ego or harm your career so you you know so it's kind of impre- well part of it might be impression impression management I know I do that at work I tend not to say what I really think about some issues for fear of how how people might how people might perceive me or how it might come across or then having to having to explain it out loud well i think it's the the, the fear here is um the misinterpretation right if um i don't know let's try to find an example i if you can say let's say brexit if i was to say well i can understand the other side you know um i can see both sides and and blah blah, blah. people can then go and say oh this person is for or like a, for uh, for Brexit and you know so so this is I mean it's very common right you say something and it's take it's taken out of context and misinterpreted and you don't want um, your position to to kind of be um, misrepresented in that kind of way so I wouldn't I wouldn't be so concerned about saying things that I kind of un, unclear about in um, in a one on one or in a group or things that are not recorded because things that I I'm kind of in the middle. Um, because then it, it can't be misrepresented. But um, nowadays, with Twitter or whatever, I mean, you, you anything that you say is then can taken out of context and, and um, put assigned. You know, your name is now with with a sentence that you you do not stand uh, for. So yeah, that's a problem in, in kind of these things. Because I think when you ask people what they changed their mind on, it's probably not a, a it's probably not a straight change. It's not like I gone from black to white. It's kind of I was only saw black but now I can see a little bit of white and why people can be in white right yeah um, no, so one of our other guests was um uh, so Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's pollster and she was saying it's interesting in a political context that in her in her experience people haven't really changed their minds it's more that the party and things around them have have changed so 
she was saying how she she didn't vote Labour in the last election uh, because the party has changed rather than her fundamental beliefs. And that was that was that was the first time someone has has said that. It was that was an interesting mm. interesting take on it as well. Well, definitely, I think when people do change their mind, I think the most common reason would be personal experience. Um, that's just my guess mm. that if someone changed their mind, for example, on things like even Brexit, perhaps maybe, you know, now they know someone or they married someone that, that is European. And so they have a different you know, perspective or um, on if it's gun control, maybe they had an experience or know someone who had an experience or I don't know, autism and, and vaccine. Um, so maybe you were pro-vaccine, but now, you know, your kid has autism or you're, you know, someone that you know has autism or other way around. You did, you know, someone who didn't vaccinate or you didn't vaccinate and now they have um, measles. So I think if I had to guess, I would say most uh, kind of change of minds on things that are relatively fundamental would probably be because of some personal experience, either to you or someone that's very close to you, because those are the things that really influence us the most. Mm. Yeah, again, really similar to one of our other guests talking about gay marriage. Her own parents had had a, well, she'd had a, I guess, a, a negative experience with marriage with her parents, managers, her family, uh, wider friends' marriages. And it wasn't until she saw the first gay marriage that was the first positive experience that she'd really seen and was part of that she then changed her mind on on marriage and actually then got married herself. So fascinating. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure a gay marriage is, is a great example of that. Even in people who are definitely for gay marriage, it's I guess it's very different if you have a close relationship, you know, with people who, who have gone through it. Mm. Um, yeah. That was exactly her. Thank you so much, Tally, for joining us. Uh, I could go on for a lot, lot longer, but I'm aware we have, unfortunately, uh, a limited amount of time. Listeners, you can find out more about us and the Depolarisation Project at depolarisationproject.com. We are very grateful to Caroline Crampton, our producer. The music, Dreams Become Real, from Kevin MacLeod is licensed under Creative Commons. Do join us again for the next episode of Change My Mind.